Welcome to Our Interesting Times with host Timothy Kelly, who interviews today's top alternative and revisionist thinkers. May you live in interesting times. My guest this evening is William Ramsey. He is the author of Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order, and Abomination, Devil Worship and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders. He's also the proprietor of Occult Investigations, a website dedicated to covering the role of the occult in the intrigues of the deep state and history of our country and perhaps Western civilization in general. He's also the host of uh, the weekly program, William, Ram- Real- William Ramsey Investigates, correct? Correct. And that's on the Awake Radio Network? That's on Awake Radio, but you can also listen to it on my YouTube channel, which is Occult Investigations on YouTube. I have all my past shows over there. Okay, great. Now, listen, listen, William, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And, um, well, I want to get talk to you about regarding your, your research regarding some of these things. Uh, 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 Crowley, his, his role, uh, perhaps, in, in shaping the... Uh, the the 20th century, I was reading an article, apparently he's considered, was it the 77th greatest? Englishman, yes. Englishman, which, considering the influence of the British Empire in in the modern era, that's saying a lot. It is, (laughs) I would agree with that. I was surprised to see him on that list. He's up there with some uh, pretty important Englishmen, Churchill and the Beatles and stuff like that. And, uh, of course, uh, they all have... They all might be have a lot in common, actually. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Crowley is that much of his influence is sub rosa. It's not overt, you know, and not too many people admit it. But if you're very careful, you can kind of ascertain people's influence, you know. So, uh, but he he was definitely definitely quite an influence on the 20th century as he intended to be. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my interest in Crowley really came out of 9/11. I was a 9/11 researcher. I'd always been a reader about. Uh, stories, parapolitics, maybe deep politics, and I had been reading about everything, but 9-11 was particularly interesting, but I kept seeing these numbers at 11. Actually, the date of the event was 9-11, uh, the 11th day of uh, September. So, you know, and there were all these 11s popped up. I had read an article by a guy by the name of Captain May, who uh, also noticed these uh, numerical uh, significances, and so it just led me to research, and I found out that 11 was the prime number of Aleister Crowley. But also other numbers were important, too, to Crowley, 93, 77, and 175. And those were the numbers of the planes in 9-11. And those buildings were 110 stories tall, basically, in 11. So there's these occult numerical uh, markers on that event. And that's what led me to Crowley. And I really wanted to figure out who Crowley was. I had a very uh, superficial, topical knowledge of Aleister Crowley. I'd heard of him from, like, Ozzy Osbourne had a song, Aleister Crowley had seen his face, and people had talked about him, but I really didn't know what he meant. I didn't know what the, the kind of uh, his writings were, and it led me to just read everything I could on Crowley. I read all of his biographies that were available. I actually went to source texts. I created a timeline of his life, and it led to my first book, Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11 in the New World Order. And my general thesis is that the ideas of Aleister Crowley influenced the events of 9-11, the actual day of the event, and the agenda of what the purpose of 9-11 was. So uh, that, uh, you know, that book uh, really traced his life, which, you know, was from 1875 to 1947 when he died. And that also led my interest into seeing what his real effect upon the culture of the 20th century was. I, so I started to research this book that 
I finally published this year, maybe two months ago, called Children of the Beast, which is available on my website at Cold Investigations. Um, and while I was researching that book, I came across a video of somebody in the West Memphis murders, a guy by the name of Damien Eccles, who's kind of the, the head figure of the West Memphis Three, talking about Alistair Crowley. Actually, the prosecutor was asking him about Alistair Crowley because Damien Eccles had, after his arrest, he had been writing kind of a secret code referencing the name of Alistair Crowley in kind of a secret alphabet. And the prosecutor was asking him about it. And there was actually on the, the table of the prosecutor was Crowley's masterwork, Magic and Theory and Practice. And that led me to really investigate the West Memphis Three event. And there's tons of occult elements to that event. And one of the remarkable things about the West Memphis Three is how many celebrities are modern celebrities that we know uh, were supporters of the West Memphis Three, people like Johnny Depp, uh, uh, Dave Navarro, Margaret Cho, Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam, all these people, and, and uh, the director of the Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings movies, Peter Jackson, somebody who I just read is worth $450 million, very wealthy people, and Johnny Depp has an astronomical personal value, but they spent money the amount of money that was spent to release the West Memphis Three was estimated to be ten to twenty million dollars, which which allowed them to really get the best attorneys, the best PR people, and they were released from jail. Actually, just it was five years ago to the day on August nineteenth, so they've been out of jail for five years. They're on probation for ten years. But I studied the case, and the, the general consensus was that they were innocent. They were railroaded that they were set up, it was a witch hunt, there was all these kind of loaded terms that were bandied about, but I, fortunately for me, somebody had done all the legwork and all of their court materials, all of the police files, the research was on a website called Callahan AK, so being the kind of research junkie that I am, I just read all the things, and I'm like, hold on, there's tons of problems with this, I'm an attorney, I, I'm a, currently an attorney with the state of California, registered member of the bar, and when I put my legal hat on, I said, whoa, 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 there's real problems here. These guys were seen at the site. They all admitted to doing it. Jesse Miskelly, who was one of the West Memphis Three, admitted to doing it post-conviction. Uh, he told all kinds of people that they did it. So it was very clear to me that they were the right party to be put to trial. And they were all felt, actually found guilty in two separate trials. Uh, by two separate juries, so 24 people all came to the conclusion that they were guilty. So the, the, that was my second book, Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception, Deception. And then Children of the Beast really just covers all the people that Aleister Crowley influenced. And it's a long list. Um, people that, you know, you would know, my, like Alfred Kinsey, Arthur Clarke, uh, but other and Charles Manson, believe it or not, but people, and Jimmy Page, but people that you may not know, people like H.R. Geiger, who was an artist who influenced the movie Alien, uh, people like uh, Harry Hay, who was the head of the homosexual, really the kind of homosexual revolutionary of uh, the 20th century, was influenced by Aleister Crowley, L. Ron Hubbard, um, people like Ian Fleming, who really his first book had somebody who was a prototype of Aleister Crowley in it, and had actually been in contact with Crowley regarding the whole Hess affair when Hess left uh, Adolf Hitler's regime and tried to negotiate peace with England. So there, there's quite a few references there in that book, and that's really the, the three books that I have written that are uh, directly tied to Aleister Crowley. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so he, his, he casts a long shadow. Um, so uh, Aleister Crowley, uh, quickly, uh, uh, who was he? Uh, his date of birth, is that important? I mean, uh, uh, this, the, 
So let, let, I think it is. I think yeah. the time of Yeza's birth was very important. He was born into a very wealthy family. He was associated with a Christian sect called the Plymouth Brethren that was started by uh, John Darby. They were kind of a, a uh, he was a, a dispensationalist, Darby was, and he was, they, he, actually Crowley's family was part of the Exclusive Brethren, which was a subset of the Plymouth Brethren. They were supposed to be a more rigid, uh, serious member of the Christian community. And when his father died at 12, Crowley rebelled. So he had, he was a person of the only child. He, the amount of money that he inherited when his mother died was in the sum of today's terms, like $20 million. So it was a significant fund. Crowley never worked, but he was uh, very well educated. He went to the best British schools, ended up at uh, Cambridge and, uh, or Oxford. And uh, he really just started in his cold at a very early age. He became interested in secret societies. And he was, he was born at a time when the English Empire really was the dominant power of the world. At the late 19th century, the sun never set on the British Empire. They owned one-fourth of the land mass of the world. And Crowley had that advantage. He circumnavigated the world twice um, before, his, before he was 40 and spent his time really as an occultist. That was really, he said in his very early age, he was white hot on three things, mountaineering, poetry, and magic. So he was writing poetry, practicing magic, and he was an avid mountaineer at a very early time. He tried to scale some of uh, the tallest mountains in, in India, uh, actually Nepal, that area. It was called Kanchen Junga. And so he was an adventure. He took as his kind of guide this guy, Richard Burton, who, pre, who was an adventurer before him, somebody who studied languages. He was one of the first white people to take a hajj to, um, to Saudi Arabia, to Mecca and Medina, as a kind of undercover uh, Muslim and wrote about it. So Crowley kind of, that was his model. And so he became... This writer, he was always involved in an early magical society that was a post-Masonic society, something beyond masonry, called the Golden Dawn. He went all the way up the the lip. Uh, that was really probably the base basis of his all of his occult work was everything he learned from the Golden Dawn. And his master was a guy by the name of McGregor Mathers, who uh, Crowley used as kind of another influence. Somebody who'd written books about the Kabbalah, the Tarot, and was a practicing magician. So Crowley became like that. They actually went in court, he, Mather sued Crowley for stealing and publishing secrets from the Golden Dawn that Crowley said that he would keep quiet. He, he made an oath of secrecy, which he broke. But early in his life, probably the most influential event was it happened in 1904 in Egypt, where Crowley said he received the Book of the Law, which uh, was a small pamphlet he said he, he was dictated to from a god he called Awas, A-I-W-S-Z, or it was spelled in different ways. But he said it was the this person who was, Iwas means Lord of the Air. And it was dictated to him for three days over his shoulder. He said it was a preternatural intelligence that guided it to him. And that became the groundwork for uh, much of his religion, Crowleyanity, or everything that he had, would write about later went back to the Book of the Law. And so that was uh, something that happened in 1904. And he traveled a lot. And I think that his you know, when I first read Crowley, I didn't really analyze his whole secret, uh, secret service stuff, but he was probably an asset of the English uh, intelligence from a very early age, from his bright postgraduate. He was constantly traveling. He's a very difficult person to tie down. It wasn't like in his uh, place for one period of time. Was he, he would, I'm sorry, was he, think he was recruited at Cambridge? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. As, yeah. As, as are many, 
of course. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And I yeah. think that that was his, he was always an elitist. So, you know, he, uh, he, he, uh, you know, at a very early age, he was, he was going to, uh, Russia. He traveled to Russia before the, the revolution. He ended up in, in uh, he was actually in, um, he was, he was in like, the U.S. for the war, World War One, where he was involved. The, the real pro- English, the English really wanted the U.S. in the war in World War One, and keep and the Germans wanted the U.S. out of war. The interesting thing is that um, Crowley traveled to the U.S. on the Lusitania, which its sinking of the Lusitania would actually lead to uh, would lead to the U.S. involvement in World War One. But he traveled to. He would always go to different places. He was in, he was circumnavigating the globe. China. He'd been to India um, through modern day Vietnam. Uh, he had been all through the U.S. You know, so his travels. He was constantly moving. He'd been Mexico after the Golden Dawn broke down. He traveled to Mexico, and uh, so he was. Uh, it's really remarkable in that sense. You know, he never really had to die. All the time he's traveling, he's writing poetry and practicing magic and leaving magical records. Uh, so it's really one interesting aspect of Crowley that uh, makes it difficult to really put a finger on him. But uh, he was in Engl- He was in the United States working as a spook, and I think uh, Richard Spence wrote Secret Agent Six Six Six, which really was a provided one key piece of evidence about Crowley, where he found uh, Richard Spence found in American records that there was a writing that said about Crowley. He is working for the English for the English. Uh, intelligence with the full knowledge of the United States. That's not, that's a paraphrase for what it was stated, but there was a record in there that... Wasn't he, uh, I guess, wasn't his uh, overt role playing a role of, like, Irish nationalist and pro-German? Exactly. So he had these these ridiculous things he would do about... He actually uh, did this stunt that was actually published in the New York Times, and that article is available, but Crowley went out to the uh, Statue of Liberty, and tore up his English passport and proclaimed, uh, you know, the freedom for the Irish nationalists and threw his passport into the water. He actually was supposed, he wanted to actually uh, do that stunt on the, on the Statue of Liberty, but he didn't get the proper permit. So uh, he was on a boat with his girlfriend at the time, uh, a girl by the name of Lila Waddell, his was Scarlet Woman at the time, while she was playing she was an accomplished violinist, so she was playing the violin while Crowley was doing this. And he would do these public stunts often, so you would see these writings that were... Uh, he was kind of like a, a celebrity kind of uh, publicity hound of that era, you know, so trying yeah. to do things to get in the papers and stuff like that. So, you know, getting back to Crowley, always traveling, always writing. There's tons of, of literature. He wrote for Vanity Fair. That, that magazine is still around, but 100 years ago, Crowley was writing for them under his name and under pen names. And he was an excellent prose writer. I mean, really, I guess that was, he was at the top of his form in that era when writing was much more prized than it is today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he left this just voluminous records, voluminous records that nobody, not even his admirers or his other biographers have really effectively compiled all of his writings because he wrote under different names and things like that. But there are good biog- bibliographies that include a lot of stuff, but some stuff is missing. But his most important book was The Book of the Law and also Magic and Theory and Practice, which he wrote in the 30s, which encompassed a lot of his magical techniques and ideas. 
But uh, he all the time was trying to find uh, disciples, and people came to him, and he had a wide variety of wealthy disciples. He didn't believe of dealing with anybody from the middle. And this is kind of a, an exemplar of his elitist mentality. He never really dealt with people who were middle or lower class, but he would find people from wealthy families or people who went to the best schools and trained them. So he had this, wide, this variety of followers. J.F.C. Fuller was one, Victor Newberg, people who you might not know, Gerald York, but all these guys came from wealthy families. But J.F.C. Fuller was interesting because he actually went on to influence the German high command, his ideas of uh, mass military infantry or mass military assaults with armor influenced the German high command. And actually his ideas led to the Nazi triumphs, believe it or not. He actually met with one of Hitler's top generals, a guy by the name of Guderian. And he was one, J.F.C. Fuller was one of two people who was invited to Hitler's 50th birthday in, um, in Berlin. So there's interesting connections between a lot of people that Crowley knew and Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, believe it or not. Crowley was in the Weimar Republic from 1930 to 33, probably acting as a spy, hanging out with other known spies in the kind of lead-up to Hitler's ascent to power. And I think he left in a very close association to when Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. So it's a fascinating aspect of Crowley's life. You know, and he was, Crowley was kicked out of uh, Italy by Mussolini. So he has these contacts and interests uh, with all these dictators of that era. Um, Crowley, after he left, uh, after he, Britain achieved the goal of getting the U.S. into the war against the Germans, Crowley left uh, left the United States, traveled back to Britain, and ended up in Italy. Uh, and he created what he what he called the Abbey of Philema, the Abbey of the Will. Philema and Agape were two important Greek words to Crowley. Both of them Kabbalistically ed- added up to 93. But Philema means will, Agape love, and Crowley believed in his personal will. That was the most important thing, is to focus the will to get what you want and achieve what you want to do. But the Abbey of Philema functioned for three years. People from all over the world came and traveled there to learn at the foot of the beast. Um, and there are pretty good records of people who had traveled there, and I include them in Prophet of Evil. But there was a magical floor. There were magical workings there. There were artwork all across the walls. And eventually, and Crowley would come and go there. He would travel to northern uh, Africa, travel all the way. He actually, interestingly, was in Rome, and this is probably another exemplar of his assignment as an intelligence asset. He was in Rome for three days watching Mussolini and his black shirts take over the, um, the Italian government, which is another fascinating correlation. Of Crowley was kind of like a zealot type figure. He knew a lot of the uh, known culturally important people, but he was also in these funny places at the right time. So in 1923, Mussolini gets tired of his antics, kicked him out of of Italy. He has to abandon everything. All his followers flee. He travels to Tunisia and eventually makes his way back to Paris. He lives in Paris with a guy by the name of Frank Harris and his wife, uh, Keith, I think her name was. And there he is probably, they think, uh, the French think he's an asset of, of German intelligence. And he's uh, doing all kinds of magical workings. And that's where he's rumored, rumored to have met this woman by the, way, by the name of Pauline Pierce. And, or Pauline Robinson, who became Pauline Pierce. And, uh, uh, and this connects to? <laughs> Barbara Bush. So she comes back. She comes, supposedly yes. comes back. Now, the, the yes. fact is, is that at the time Crowley is in France, he's involved in all kinds of rituals that require servitors. 
he was doing something called, I mean, the details are rather lurid, but ECL, uh, which stands for Erato Comatose Lucidity. Um, so they needed to have all these women, and she was rumored to be one of the women, and the timing is right. Actually, all the numbers work perfectly together of her coming back pregnant with uh, a daughter who looks exactly like her. And it's important to remember, too, that uh, the elites at that era wanted to go to France. That was kind of like the, the 20s were... Uh, an important era of the City of Lights. All these writers and artists uh, were all there. And so it was really the place to be. And Crowley really was attracted to those type of things as well. Uh, Hemingway is there. And uh, anyway, so Crowley eventually gets kicked out of France. 1929 gets kicked out of France, has to flee back to England. All these times that he's kicked out, he's still able to come back to England. So all these notions that he was anti-British or anything, he was always allowed back into his home country, which t should tell you a lot. Or tell the public a lot. So then he ends up there. 1929 goes back to Germany. He's in Germany for three years. Hitler comes to power. He leaves. And eventually ends up. He travels around more. Has all kinds of ridiculous lawsuits. Ends up in a boarding home for the rest of his life. Until he died in 1947. In the south of uh, England in Hastings. Kind of upper end boarding home. And all the time. Bringing followers. Trying to find more disciples. Running the OTO. He became the head of the German OTO, which stands for Ordo, Ordo Templi Orientis, which is a German secret society that Crowley became head of in 1925, which is interesting. Uh, the Germans made him the head of the British uh, segment of the OTO sometime earlier, maybe a decade or two earlier, but when the heads of the OTO died who were German, he became the head, and then integrated all of his ideas into their secret society doctrines, drug usage, sex magic, uh, etc. So... That's basically the long and short of Aleister Crowley now. Why is Crowley important? There were other type of occultists, other people, the Masons, people like uh, Manly P. Hall, Albert Pike, Blavatsky. Uh, why aren't they referenced by the modern occultist as much as Aleister Crowley? What makes him different? And I think what made him different than them is that he was actually... This person who, because of his free time, he left a, a large repository of magical practices that, and dictums and things to, to, that other people could learn from that these other people may not have done so well. People like Blavatsky who wrote these thick tomes or uh, Manly P. Hall who didn't really have kind of magical guide or framework to my knowledge or, you know, these other people who were kind of historians. Crowley was like a person who put things into place where people could act through the OTO through his works and through his magical fraternity he called the AA, the Arjum Astrum or, or Silver Star. So I think that, and the Crowley had this doctrine of permissiveness that allowed people to achieve whatever they want and really have no restraints. Um, I think that that was kind of Crowley's dictum, do what thou wilt shall be the whole law, an 11 letter phrase that he repeated all the time. And I think that that was his attraction to this day. And that's why all these music bands, artists, politicians, and people reference Aleister Crowley. And I, you know, I include a lot of those people in my book, Children of the Beast. Yeah, the, the, uh, the doctrine of do what thou wilt. Um, didn't he also paint that on, along the Hudson River in New York? When he was Correct. Yeah. So when he was, in, uh, when he was in New York, he traveled up. He, they, he told people he wanted to take a magical retirement, but some of his followers said he just wanted to get out of the heat of New York. So he traveled up the Hudson, Hudson River and stayed at an island called Esopos, E-O-S-P-O-S, -S, I think it's called. But while he was up there, he 
there were two bluffs at some point in the Hudson River. And on one side, he wrote, uh, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And then on the other, he wrote a dictum from the book of the law, which is every man and woman is a star. And this is not too far away from what would become the scene for the Woodstock Rock Festival of 1969. Yeah, I think so. I think it's right up there close to, uh, what's the military base up there or the military? It is, uh, let me look it up. That's Opus Island. Yeah, but yeah, so he was up there. Um, it's E-S-O-P-U-S Island. That's where he was close to, which is still there. And, uh, you know, it's just a remarkable piece. A lot of people wouldn't tie Crowley to the United States, but, you know, that's uh, his cl- a little north of West Point. Okay. So, now, what's interesting is that Crowley is, he's one of these figures like John D. Uh, connects the uh, the occult to... The world of intelligence, um, uh, and whether it's magic, uh, you know, secrecy. Um, now, a lot of these can be done with through sleight of hand, uh, conjuring, which requires a sort of occulted knowledge. And um, now, Crowley himself is sort of a self promoter, and some say some of his reputation for being evil he, he helped promote. He was kind of like, um, well, so much of his life it could be semi mythological because. One of the things, I think just the point that Richard Spence makes uh, in his book, Agent 666, is that the problem with these figures is they're also liars. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if you run, I came yeah. across so many people. I tried to really put Crowley in place by people, secondary sources who had met him. And yeah. almost every time they say he's boasting, they yeah. don't really know what's the truth. Um, you know, uh, Somerset Mom, who's a famous writer of Razor's Edge, said, you know, he just kept talking and talking. Some of it was true. Some of it was not. It reminded me actually a lot of what people said about L. Ron Hubbard. It's like yeah. they just can't stop talking. But, uh, you know, there was another guy, a guy by the name of Lance Seepking, who I included in my book. And he says, I sat there and listened as Crowley talked and talked and talked. He had an air <laughs> of treating me as though I was an initiate in his cult. You know, so they just all said the same thing. Uh, and I think that that was kind of the way he controlled people is he just kept talking and talking and talking. And they just drone on and the people just either come under his spell or whatever. But yeah, I think it is hard. Crowley is hard. But I think you can put a finger on him. I think in my book, Prophet of Evil, I, I got a good idea because there were so many people who met him in first hand and gave first hand accounts. And no, any, nobody really ever said, oh, I trusted him. Yeah. But they all said, gave, I think, credible accounts. Like there's this one girl, Betty May, who, who's... Uh, her boyfriend actually ended up dying at the Abbey of Philema. And she gave first-hand accounts of Crowley in England. She gave first-hand accounts of him in um, in the Abbey of Philema. But uh, I think it was all credible. And, you know, they say the same thing. He talked. He had an impression on people. Um, he was strange. And they were afraid of him. You know, and that, that, I think that was fairly consistent with people who had met him for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to an interview with Richard Spence uh, that done on Jay Dyer's show. And he was talking about his book. He's talking about um, Dennis Wheatley. I think yeah. he's had this to say about Crowley. He said, "I'd never leave him alone with my children, nor would I ever lend him money." <laughs> yeah. Well, at the end of his, he he was actually one of the interesting things about Crowley is somebody who thought he was very important had a really terrible yeah um, relationship with money, and uh, at the end of his life, he had spent all of his money. And he was always trying to grift money from people through one way or another, whether it was followers or lawsuits. Didn't, didn't Anton LaVey end up broke, too? 
I, that's what I heard. Yeah, uh, so I think I it's, it's really funny. Know the the thing, but for sure Crowley was uh, Crowley was broke, and but Wheatley, you know, they were all took an interest, and in I concluded Dennis in Dennis Wheatley in my book about uh, Children of the Beast because he's an important figure too. He was kind of like the Stephen King of his era, mm-hmm. and uh, sold six million books in the millions, like tens of millions, and met Crowley. He was friends with Wheatley. Was friends with Ian Fleming. And his books were all in, had characters who were influenced by Crowley. Uh, Devil's Ride Out was this guy, villain Mokata, who, if you watch this movie, The Devil Rides Out, I suggest people who want to get an idea of what Crowley looked like. This was another Crowley figure. Like Fleming had this one guy by the name of Lashif. Wheatley's was Mokata. And Mokata said the same things as Crowley, modeled on Aleister Crowley. In magic, there is nothing good or evil. It is merely a science, the science of causing change to occur by means of one's will. That's right out of Crowley's lexicon you know and uh his dennis wheatley's gregory sallust was the influence upon ian fleming's james bond and uh so wheatley uh you know it's very interesting a lot of these guys really knew him and he knew tom dryberg who was actually supposed to be alistair crowley's heir uh, which is another interesting character a lot of people in england know him but the people in the u.s don't but um yeah wheatley is Here's what Wheatley says about Crowley. His conversation was fascinating. He gave me much useful information in several of his books, but never tried to draw me into his occult activities. So yeah. that's a very consistent thing about his fascinating conversation. Well, I mean, one thing I was listening to, uh, uh, I've listened to your interviews regarding uh, 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 Crowley and also uh, Dr. Spence and his book. And um, uh, what, I, what, I, what I seem to get out of it is that Crowley himself was, was an asset. And given he had these connections to these, you know, I guess you could say these transnational uh, cult societies, secret societies, mm-hmm. that all have certain intelligence utility, whether it's his right. travels, his knowledge of certain – I mean, if you're a global empire, you want to have un- certain anthropological you know, s- knowledge of the areas you're trying to control or conquer. Right. And someone right. like a Crowley would be very good in, in not only providing that information, but also be- – how to engage in you know what would have been you know psychological warfare, which the British were adept at. Um, but given Crowley's uh, connections to you know Dennis Wheatley, Ian Fleming, Somerset Maugham, the British establishment, British intelligence, yep. what does that say about the Anglo-American establishment? Is that they're willing to use occultists uh, for expedience? You know, I think that mm-hmm. that is common, and I actually think in the United States, if you look at a lot of the people who run the CIA. They all come out of Skull and Bones. I mean, what, how many members of Skull and Bones signed the National Security Agreement in 1947? There's like a famous picture of them. It's like Skull and Bones, Skull and Bones, <laughs> which is an occult society. George yeah. W. Bush, both Bush Sr. and Jr., Skull and Bones. So there's a lot of people out there with secret knowledge, like Crowley, who are elements of the state, you know, who are assets of the state. Yeah. And uh, I think even going back, you mentioned John D. Here you go with this guy who's like the court, the most knowledgeable man in Europe at the time with the largest library is, um, you know, sitting with Queen Elizabeth, right? So mm-hmm. these, I think that if you look back in history, even if you go into the Old Testament, whether you want to talk about like Daniel, the book of Daniel, who the kings have these soothsayers and astrologers, um, I don't think it's, I think that that as actually the rule as opposed to, you know, something unique that a lot of these powerful people have people who would ascribe to ideas that Crowley did, who would do their bidding, do the bidding of the state without um, without any kind of moral qualms. Yes. Here's a perfect thing, I like this guy Steve King was talking about. He said that Crowley said to him, if you want to find the men who have crossed my path, the men who have wronged me, 
you have but three places in which to look, the jail, the madhouse, and the grave. So this is a guy cruelly bragging in like 1929 that, you know, this is what happens to his enemies. And I think that's an ideal person. If you have a state and you have to get something done, that's an ideal person you want to put a task to, right? Yes. So, yes. Um, Interesting, yeah. Um, so here, here he is. I mean, he's a... Uh, well, okay, he's he's linked to intelligence, uh, and we've, we've said why that's important. Um, and historically, there have been other, I guess, similar figures who, like John D., who have ties to intelligence right. to the state and court intrigues, you know, geopolitics and all that. Um, but if you look at the uh, the secret societies, um, uh, whether if you want to call the CIA secret society, I think that's fine. But they're an outgrowth of Skull and Bones and sort of the uh, the Eastern establishment. Um, and, and the CIA was formed to pursue their interests in, the, in rapid in the American flag. Right, and, and say that we're there to have a thing, but yeah, right. yeah. I would totally agree with that. I think that they had an internal agenda and an external agenda. I think, what did Truman say, that the signing of the NSA was the biggest mistake he ever made or something? Yes, yeah, uh, yeah as if he had a choice. Right. <laughs> true, well, good point. <laughs> Um, because uh, I mean, again, if you do if you do a history of, of the intelligence agencies, whether it's Brit, you know, MI6, which is really what SIS, I think. Yeah, SAS, yeah, I think yeah. So. SAS, uh, MI6, MI5, and then it was the OSS to the CIA. Mm-hmm. But they're all linked to the, I guess, to, to the uh, ultimately to the banking and financial interests that uh, comprise the Anglo-American Empire today, but uh, grew out of the opium slave trade and these things. All these, all these kind of dirty kind yeah. of international intrigue type stuff. I agree. Look at Ian Fleming. He came out of a banking family, the Fleming family, and they were privileged kids who went to Eton, he and his brother, and, you know, then he really, that's probably why he got his job at a very important, and he probably was an asset from a very early age. He has all the elements of an intelligence asset um, from the beginning, a journalist who traveled to Germany, and so it wasn't like he just showed up at uh, ten, you know what is it? Ten Downing Street to be an asset for the uh, naval ass. The one of the biggest Godfrey, who was the head of the naval division in uh, England. You know, probably the most important, like their important part of their mm-hmm. military branches. So, um, here's another aspect. So, banking guy was an intelligence asset working for the interests of the British Empire. And here in the United States, the CIA's uh, precursor was the OSS, which is Office of Strategic Services. But some people said it stood for Oso Social. Right, a good point. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the interesting thing is that when Fleming was in the United States, he wrote the uh, the setup for the CIA. I mean, basically, yeah. a lot of that the the you know skeletal elements of what would create be the CIA was was drafted by some British guy. Yeah, that goes to this sort of this uh, effort made by the British in the latter half of the nineteenth century was to reincorporate the United States into the Anglo fold. And they were largely successful. I mean, that's with the Pilgrim Society, the Union Now you know, Society. This was done, aided pretty much with the, with the development of the telegraph, um, right. steamship, and these things. But the I guess you know the Eastern establishment was always kind of Anglophile. So right. uh, pretty that was you know once they they controlled the newspapers and the media of the day, and um, I think uh, if you look at Hollywood, if this as it developed and went up to the Second World War, it was. Uh, Largely, you know, it's pro-British. You know, right. you had, it wasn't, oh, what was his name? You had the Quarter Circle, uh, and you also had that other opera guy who ran Paramount. What was his name? 
I, don't, I wish I knew. Reese, Reese, not Reisman. But his job was to make sure they produced a bunch of pro-British movies. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that, I mean, that's what maybe they, you mentioned, right? Crowley, what he's doing, he's here in the United States as an agent, as a British agent. Right. Well, I mean, involved in what was the most important kind of mind influencing things at the time, which were magazines and, and newspapers. Mm-hmm. So he's working for the fatherland. He admitted in his confessions, the 500 page, you know, autobiography that he was there at, as to make his arguments of the, of the Germans absurd, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and make it make the Germans look ridiculous. And he said he achieved it. So I think, uh, you know, that's just one asset that you know. And that's oh, I the mean, interesting thing about yeah. intelligence. You don't know who the assets are. Yeah. And British propaganda was always so much more subtle and effective than, say, German propaganda, which tended to be overt. Yeah, I think you know? you're right. <laughs> yeah, the English are incredible, man. The British yeah. Empire, the reason that the empire was so big and effective on this minority population is that they were incredibly clever. Yes. You know, they did all kinds of manipulation. They put pit people against each other. No, they, they, no, they, t- they, they took... They took over the world in a fit of absence. That's what they say, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they had a hold on the on the American mind. I mean, you know, they're the ones that burned the White House in 1814. Yet, yeah. a century later, the United States is going to war to save the British Empire twice. It's incredible, man. Yeah. You know, I've actually taken a tour of the White House when I was in um, when I was in D.C. from '95 to '98. I knew I, I just family members worked at the White House, so I took mm-hmm. that tour and. Uh, sat there and there's actually there's a place on the burn the old underbelly of the white house still exists and you can see the um char marks from the burning of 1814 when the brits came and burned the whole thing they're still there yes literally right there i was sitting right there and the guy i put my hand on i was just like whoa this is incredible it's just a total piece of history right next to where they have the underground bowling alley and all that stuff but if you look at the american flag it actually is it's a virtual copy of the uh British East India Company flag. Interesting. And um, again, we mentioned Yale, Skull and Bones, and Yale. You know, the per- Yale was named after a man who worked for the British East India Company. So the Eastern establishment always had these ties. This goes back to you know the Russell tru- Russell family uh, and the opium trade when they more or less went into business with the British. Uh, you know, with the clipper ships and all right. this. And they, yep. To uh, kind of, and this affects you know China because that became not only did it become a means to reverse the balance of trade between China and Great Britain uh, for the tea, it also be uh, opium became a weapon to make China vulnerable for penetration, ultimately you know, exploitation by the British. And people have done people uh, research on people like Mao, revolutionaries uh, who actually was a Yale. Interesting, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's when was of, Mao and Yale? Well, he was. He went to school at a. They, they ran, Yale ran a bunch of uh, missions in China, right? And he went, he attended uh, an institution that was run by Yale. Interesting. And I think one of his agent, I think the OSS agent who met with him was name was Snowden, by the way. <laughs> wow, fascinating. That was actually very common for a lot of those revolutionaries in the third world to have some kind of attachment or affiliation with uh, education in the West. Yeah. Know? And it Sun Yat Sen apparently was uh, was a, was, a, was a Freemason. Not surprised. Yeah, and this sort of national, this, you know, sort of the, how you how you take over a whole region and control it, and this is this is part of how you, Freemasonic way of doing it through uh, dialectics, I guess you could say. And you could say that the the, um, the disruption and hell that that Mao imposed on China was setting up for what we what we have in China today, sort of the Rockefeller plan, this sort of this ideal right. state capitalism, you know. 
state capitals and mass control and total, yeah. um, yeah. And that's why, yeah, that's why someone like David Rockefeller always had great words to say for Mao. You know, so. Yeah, and the Chinese model. They all love, they yes. love the Chinese model, yeah, because they so, put it together, right? The one child, all that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff. So they love that stuff. Um, but but again, yeah, what we're getting at is, is you had these connections to the British establishment and uh, this connection between uh, the occult magic, sort of this uh, esoteric stuff to the, sort of the uh, the, uh, the elite. Really, the, I mean, an elitist. You know, the, there's just the, having this. They talk about uh, Crowley's cultural influence and the the influence of the elite, which I have with my research and I've looked read the research of others that there seems to be an agenda of. Uh, whether you call it Freemasonic or not, but an agenda to sort of uh, sub uh, subject uh, Western civilization, in particular the United States, to a sort of a, um, a cultural uh, culture comp, maybe culture comp, culture war, psychological warfare. I yeah, mean, I would say so. I mean, I think Crowley thought he was trying to make a cosmological change. He thought on very mm -hmm. broad, deep terms, in the sense that he wanted to bring an age, an end to the age of Osiris, and bring in the age of Horus. You know this kind of hawk, war-headed god, but get Osiris represented the Christian age, and so to facilitate that change, he wanted to put people in place. He actually predicted that he called it the birth of the child. He actually predicted that it would occur in the '60s, and it's fascinating because so many yes. of these change agents of the '60s were people who admired Crowley and had intelligence ties. So I'll take for example Timothy Leary, who was this button-down psychologist who ended up at Harvard doing. Uh, drug things that were sponsored by the uh, the the Office of the Human Ecology. I forgot the actual name, but I think it was some CIA front. Human Ecology Fund or something? Yeah, Human Ecology Fund. They're the ones that backed uh, Ewan Cameron, right, up in Canada, right? Yeah, so they were backing all these guys, the massive MK Ultra stuff. So Timothy Leary was one piece of it uh, at Harvard, you know, and here he is at Harvard. Who does he meet at, <laughs> at Harvard, of all people? Aldous Huxley. And they're, they're actually, I record their conversation in my book, Children of the Beast, because I think it's fascinating that Huxley and him had this conversation about drugs that, you know, I don't really, they have a conversation. Sometimes I think that there's pieces missing from their conversations that are more important, but Huxley had an elitist thing. Huxley actually knew Crowley, and it's rumored that they did mushrooms together. I just have to confirm it, but I know for a fact that Crowley painted a, a portrait of Aldous Huxley. Uh, that's in a private collection, and it's not even public. It's one of those rare Crowley entity rarities that I can't find. But um, Huxley and Leary are together in the 60s, and Leary goes on to say, and this is kind of a famous quote from Leary, that you know uh, he said on one thing, you know, I really admire Aleister Crowley. I think I'm putting into place what he envisioned. And uh, he also said that every all the changes, the major changes that happened in the 60s were sponsored by the CIA. And he was a fan of intelligence, he says says, oh, yeah, I like intelligence, and, you know, I think this was a change in intelligence, but he basically admits that, uh, you know, that that was something that influenced him, which I think is fascinating, and he actually spent time at this place in Millbrook that was yeah. uh, this place in upstate New York that uh, was run by the Hitchcock family, I think it was. Uh, the yeah, the Mellon Hitchcock Mellon, Mellon, yeah, Mellon Mellon Hitchcock. Bank family. Correct, so yeah. here's this banking probably... You know, and the grateful intelligence Dead, by the way. asset. Yeah, and so all these people are there, and uh, what happens? He leaves there and basically just starts, you know, being the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, Peggy Hitchcock was her name, and a wealthy heir to the Andrew Mellon banking family. So, and they had this she also uh, bankrolled the Grateful Dead. I didn't know that. Yeah, and Alan Trist, uh, their road manager, his father 
was the one of the founding members of the Tavistock Institute. Fascinating. I didn't so, know that. That's just amazing. That's how these ties. I mean, it's, it really is amazing. So when he says that you know the CIA created created the sixties, and that that's a uh, quite an accusation. But those who have devoted research to that particular topic have, have connected the dots and have the evidence. That's a yeah. I mean, whether it's Dave McGowan, uh, uh, Jan Irwin, uh, uh, you know, he did a thing on the um, the magic mushroom and the life magazine. I remember I've read Jan Irwin's thing about the Grateful Dead. That was really actually really yeah. good. But let me quote this thing that Leary said. I've been an admirer of Aleister Crowley. I think I'm carrying on much of his work that he started 100 years ago, and I think the 60s themselves. You know, Crowley said he was in favor of finding your own self and do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law under love. It's a very powerful statement. I'm sorry he's not around to appreciate the glories he started. Hmm. So There you go. And the other thing that's interesting about Leary is, you know, he thought that he had some kind of strange... Um, correlation with with Crowley he actually was in when Crowley was in North Africa he performed some of uh, John Dee's magical workings where you kind of break down the ethers and um, you know the he was in there this guy he was Cleary was there after he fled the United States with a drug dealer by the name of Brian Barrett and he thought that there was some correlation he said we feel we are riding the same current that powered Dr. D and Edward Kelly in the 16th century and Crowley and Newberg at the beginning of this one I see a similarity between Kelly Newberg Barrett and Barrett, paralleling the one between D. Crowley and Doctor Leary. Hmm. So it's kind of an interesting correlation. And, and Timothy Leary did a lot of stuff. He had a deck of Crowley tarot cards. He uh, here's another interesting one thing that somebody said about Leary. Timothy Leary, for example, identifies himself so entirely with the current initiated by Crowley and the coincidences and synchronicities between my life and his that he considers one of his aims. To be the completion of the work of preparing the world for cosmic consciousness, which Crowley had begun. So, now, when you talk about the 60s, we talk about feminism, the sexual revolution. And when you can't talk about the sexual revolution without talking about the Rockefeller-backed Alfred Kinsey. Not who, at all. You can't. And, and how was he connected to Crowley? So Kinsey himself did a, you know, like very specious research. About yeah. that. I think people um, who have a critical eye can tell that isn't. It has never been objectively analyzed to proper scientific, uh, you know, analysis. But Kinsey himself was very interested in Crowley's magical diaries, and he enlisted an early Crowley who is still alive, believe it or not, a guy by the name of Kenneth Anger, to travel with him to um, to Crowley's Abbey of Thelema, like we talked about, to to check out the Abbey of Thelema and go to Europe and try to track down um, track down these diaries. By the way, he received. From the Rockefeller Foundation at Indiana University, the astronomical sum of half a million dollars a year, Alfred Kinsey, in the 40s and 50s, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, but he said he was looking for the diaries. He, Kinsey wrote of Crowley. Crowley was a drug addict. The doses of heroin he took and cocaine are unbelievable, and the same is true of all the sex he had. So in 52, he traveled with Kenneth Anger to the Abbey of Thelema. And there's actually in my book, and kind of a famous picture, of Kinsey and Anger at the Abbey of Thelema under a, a picture of Crowley. And um, I think I think a lot of Kinsey's ideas were actually the same kind of conclusions that Crowley did, had, which mm -hmm. is encouraging people to go from heterosexual to homosexual, and that's okay, and encouraging sex with children. Or and uh, I think that that was very similar to Crowley. Crowley thought that you know he wanted to break down people's um, reservations for this type of practices, and when he was at the Abbey of Thelema. He would encourage young children to, you know, basically watch what the adults were doing. 
Yes. And Kinsey uh, was a nut. I mean, he was basically, he should have been locked up in a mental institution. He was a very sick, sick, sick person, if you read the, the stuff um, that he wrote. Uh, one, one of his researchers, a lady by the name of Reisman, was a uh, lady by Reisman who wrote about him, said about him, the ultimate purpose of the Kinsey reports was to prove a theory and establish a new morality, and I think that's true. And that's what Crowley wants to do. Exactly. So yeah. you, you see these correlations in outlook and behavior and this agenda that, uh, and it's being supported by all the uh, the establishment, the, the, the media, because because here here's Kinsey being put on the cover of Time magazine. Absolutely, uh, and they backed up all his research, and they they I think if you look at it, they just gave him this kind of carte blanche. They never yeah. really questioned him as a as a huckster or a fraud. He really wasn't a trained sexologist. He was actually trained as a zoologist. Uh, but because he had the doctor behind his name, it gave him some kind of credibility. But he really didn't spend his um, time uh, in undergraduate or graduate studying sex. Sex, you know, he just did it post work and post uh, doctorate stuff. And I think that that undermines his credibility. You know, he just basically saw a subject that he was going to, you know, become a a ex supposed expert in. But we can we can. Uh... Uh, put this in the context of, of the time, the 1950s and 60s. It's the same time the 50s was rather, uh, although overtly conservative, as sort of a important changes were occurring. Of course, we have the Kinsey Report being uh, spread at the 48 and early 50s, whatever, with the one on men, then on women. Uh, but you also have um, the uh, uh, introduction of Playboy magazine, which is CIA-backed, most likely. And... Um, and uh the guy who started it, uh, what's his name? Hefner. said that he was basically putting into practice all of Kinsey's work. Mm-hmm. So, so it's being it's being laid out, you know, like a almost like a media plan, like a, a like a promotional thing. Here's the all, here's the intellectual support. The, now here's the the you know, here's the the you know the pop culture. Then read Harry Hay. Harry Hay is this kind of founder of the gay rights movement, and he referenced he was actually at the OTO chapter of Crowley's OTO in Hollywood and kind of hung out with those type of people, but he referenced uh, Kinsey's, the Kinsey Report as being the scientific proof to back what he did, uh, which, you know, he was basically referencing sketchy science as uh, something that, that would influence his idea of the homosexual changes in society or promote the homosexual change, and here he is also running a secret society called the Mattachine Society. Um, so you see these similarities in these people who are promoting this kind of cultural change. Another agent, is, of course, is uh, Gloria Steinem. Agreed. And the Absolutely. CIA agent who was uh, put in place to uh, you know f- to start the feminist movement, the Ms. Magazine, and these things. Right. Um, this also coincides with a lo- with a broad cultural uh, you know uh, campaign um, that gets unfolded. Well, one thing is it starts in academia. But for some reason or another, whether, you know, why is why is she getting all the press? Why is Kinsey getting all the press? Agreed. Why do some of these people today get all the press? Yeah. You know? Why do we know who they are? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I still see that some of these people who shouldn't be get any press are promoted very, very well, and uh, that is, uh, you know, there's some very astonishing people out there who get it. Uh, so, yeah, and there's I think that the agenda in the yeah. same, yeah, exactly, in the same type of program is happening that happened in the 50s and 60s is still happening today i think so it's an agenda of cultural degradation which goes back to uh what crowley's role is is um 
um, I guess you know, I guess it's appropriate that Kinsey was a zoologist because he ultimately wants to reduce humanity to the status of animals, right? <laughs> I think so. I think so. You know, I, th- I think uh, I think that that's yeah. I, I would agree with that. I you think know, that, that that you know it's an elite mentality. If you look at Crowley, look look at Lieber seventy seven seventy seven one of his big words. But if you read it, the intro says the slave shall serve. So, you know, you've got to create a slave class of servants, and how do you keep it? How do you keep the serfs in line? You degrade them with drugs, yeah, um, all this other stuff. You break down the family so that people aren't loyal to each other. You poison their minds, okay. and then you can rule over, over them, you know? And the same thing happened in the, uh, medieval, the medieval era, and I think the same thing is happening now. And uh, there are certain people who profit off of that. So... Uh, yeah, th- th- that's... Hence, you get the '60s and the '70s, right? With the yeah. feminists. And then, if you look at his, if, if you finalize the the Libra 70, 77, the thing is, anybody who gets in the way of your rights, you kill them. Um, so, you know, you can see some of these elites, I think, still have that mentality. Well, that's the attitude of. I was talking to uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones about this very subject, and he was talking about. Um, he made the point that morality itself is a great leveler. If you have an idea of morality. Uh-huh. Uh, that that's the one thing that the weak have. If there's a notion of, of general morality, but if you get rid of morality, then the weak have nothing against the powerful. Uh, that's and a good point. It's just a question of uh, of power, and right. and so the destruction of, so say traditional or say Christian morality, um, it seems to be uh, the primary target you know, of the elite. Um, renders right, everyone they, a slave. They don't. Yeah. They don't believe in that. You know. Yeah. They don't. Uh... They don't believe in that kind, of, those kind of notions. And you know, I think that, uh, you know, that that later uh, Leary himself said he was in battle against the Judeo Christian Judeo Christian Christian commitment. Excuse me, yeah. but he thought that he was a pagan. You know, so here he says, Leary says, we had run up against the Judeo Christian commitment, one God to one God, one religion, one reality that first Europe for centuries in America since our founding days. Drugs that open the mind to multiple realities inevitably lead to polytheistic view of the to a polytheistic view of the universe. We sense that the time for a new humanist religion based upon intelligent, good-natured plural, pluralism and scientific paganism had arrived. Hmm. Yep. But that was the. Um, I mean, people looked into subject like MK Ultra, uh-huh. and how, of course, we hear the more lurid tales of you know of mind-controlled patsies. People like Sir Han, Sir Han, or maybe maybe Bremer, or maybe even Chapman or Hinckley. Um, but um, the broader attempt of, of, of MK Ultra was 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 mass mind control, mass mind manipulation. Maybe, maybe mind control is a bad term because that, that sounds cartoonish. But it's mass mind mass manipulation of public consciousness or behavior. That's that can be done in, in with your advertising, through um, strategy of tension, fear. Uh, we see a lot of that. Right. Um, that seemed to be the main force of MK Ultra. The pr- interest was with it. one thing is the mass dosing of society, uh, and that's um, you know there's a lot, there's a history to that because we know what the British Empire did, did to China with the with the opium. Right. Um, but the notion of introducing drugs in society and there's indeed, indeed now there is a paper trail to prove that the CIA and other uh, corporate bodies and interested you know. Uh, uh, th- uh, um, foundations were involved in the the promotion of the use of drugs and also the importation of those very drugs. Um, you know, right. 
I mean, I think that they knew in the 50s that LSD, and I write about that in my book, they knew in the 50s that LSD made people docile and more pliable. Mm-hmm. And then in the 60s, here's Leary promoting it in non-clinical environments to everybody as yeah. this great uh, you know, change, change agent. Yeah, it goes so, from like Operation Midnight Climax to these safe houses with uh, George Hunter White. And you say, hey, to the mass dosing of the rock festivals. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think not- it's still happening today. I think yeah. you can still trace back all of these electronica things and all these Grateful Dead events back to the mass dosing of the 60s, right? Yeah, and it's promoted. It's not just you don't have to be at that rock festival to be affected by this. It's promoted in the media. By the, you know, it's, this is supposed to be anti-establishment. And it's being promoted by the establishment. Oh, it's incredible. Here's what Timothy Leary said about the CIA. He said, the LSD movement was started by the CIA. I wouldn't be here now without the foresight of the CIA scientists. It was no accident. It was all planned and scripted by the central intelligence. And I'm all in favor of central intelligence. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just a blatant statement. I don't think that there's any, you know, you know, any, uh, you know, question about all that stuff, so... And this gets into things like Co-Intel Pro, whatever version they have out today. Uh, we, you know, I mean, if you look at some of these, I'm groups sure that, it's advanced ten by ten factor of ten. You know? Yeah, when back then you'd weather underground, right? Uh, whether or, you, yeah. you know, you wouldn't know, or the public wouldn't know the the name Co-Intel Pro without the weather underground stealing documents from an FBI office in Northern California. Mm-hmm. That's how that that word was known to the public. It's a fifty year old phrase, so I think that. You know, the scary thing is that those have probably gone through all kinds of different iterations to lo- different levels of, of sophistication. Well, now it's probably also contracted out. I mean, I, I imagine whether it's through, you know, Z or Blackwater or whatever company or through Halo. And, uh, you know, so it's not specifically the CIA anymore. Or, or which is, which is even more terrifying. Imagine yeah. a, a third-party non-governmental agency taking out or implementing dictates paid by the government. That well, isn't that like what's, if you ever watched the movie The Parallax View? Yeah, I actually just actually broke, broke that up yeah. on my, if people go to my uh, YouTube site at Cold Investigations, I cover Parallax View about two weeks ago because it's very important for people to watch Parallax View considering what's happening right now in the political race. So. Mm-hmm. But that, this notion of this strange company that, you know, Parallax company, right? Parallax yeah, Corporation. <laughs> yeah, which is probably in that movie was a front for intelligence of some side. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. That's a movie that they didn't suppress by actively doing anything. They just made sure nobody uh, watched it and it went into like a, you know, empty, some kind of bin where it collected dust because nobody really talks about it anymore. It's an important movie. I think it's a great movie. Well, I, I think, yeah, they put these movies out and say, hey, look, here, here's what our plan is. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. It's really good. It's like, I, movie, it's like Network, right? Remember Network? Right, uh, Network, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the original the original Manchurian Candidate was shelved for, what, 10 years? It wasn't shown to the public? Mm-hmm. The one with, uh, oh, what's his name? Frank. Frank Sinatra. J- Frankenheimer directed it. Right. And, and it, I actually cover that because they have a scene and sequence in there where the guy goes into a trance and they actually... In the background, you can hear him say something about the number 11, the number of magic. I think it's fascinating. So Frankenheimer yeah. was keyed in. And my understanding is that uh, Bobby Kennedy was with Frankenheimer the night before he died at the Ambassador Hotel. Did you hear that? Yeah, didn't they have dinner with, the, with, uh, with Polanski and Sharon Tate? Something weird. I thought it was Frankenheimer, the guy who directed Yeah, Frankenheimer had dinner with Bobby Kennedy, Polanski, and Tate. In night, this would have been June 68. 
Yeah, crazy. That's a little more than a year before the murder of Tate, you know, over there at the Cielo Drive. Um, And um, yeah, then he's. I think Frankenheimer drove him to the Ambassador Hotel. Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah, it's it's wild. It's just one of those weird synchronicities. Same thing with like when Kennedy died, uh, November 11th. That was the same day that Aldous Huxley died. Or November 22nd. Yes, Lewis. November 22nd. Thank you. Sorry. Which has all types of you know numerological meaning. Yeah, crazy. Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a strange world we live in. There's a lot of you know uh, conspiratorial stuff that takes place. Sirhan Sirhan was writing about the Illuminati. He was actually had brain damage. You know that he was severely brain damaged in a jockey accident where he hit his head on the rail, and so he was you know on the spectrum of people who could be put into trance states. He was on the spectrum of the most easy. You know, because some people, oh, yeah. I, I was told, cannot be hypnotized, and yeah, some people yeah. can be hypnotized like that. Snap your fingers. Well, that that was Sirhan Sirhan. Is that he was uh, an easy easy subject. I understand he also has ties to uh, to Bremer. Right. I think there was a couple guys in L.A. at the time. There were tons of Jollyon West was in L.A. All these guys were in L.A. There was a couple dudes, and they were all known to just walk around. There was one guy whose name I can't remember who. Just for sport, would hypnotize people, women, men, and they were trying to make a connection between these guys and Sirhan Sirhan, who lived in L.A. I think he was in Glendale or Pasadena or something. Uh-huh. So, but, uh, know, they, they never get, made that connection. But all those guys were CIA assets. Jolyon West was an asset. I think Jolyon West became Sirhan Sirhan's psychologist in the in the in the. Uh, uh, in jail, and that's like putting a you know fox in the chicken to keep. Same with what's his name, Ruby, right? Did he meet with Jack Ruby? I think that's right. I can't. And remember. also, reports uh, has it he met with Tim McVeigh, not too many. That's right. No, that's the truth. He did meet with. Me. <laughs> so it's a talk about a zealot figure popping oh, up. Dude. Yeah, but he was super intelligent. Jolyon West was yes. uh, at the top of his game, and they actually have a I think a building named after him at UCLA. Oh, that's great. He's a great yeah, figure. But, yeah, I mean, but you know the thing is that people just see one side of somebody else's personality. He was a right winger. He had very. If you look at some of the stuff, he got in trouble for. I forgot what he did. He did something. He killed uh, that elephant with LSD in front of kids. Is that right? Yeah, he did something else. Yeah. So anyway, there's. It's just like you know, this has been going on for a while, man. It's all of this. All he, this he, he's that famous quote about the drug about drugs being used to to. Uh, intimidate or, or uh, manipulate certain e- ethnic groups or racial minorities. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, he said something like that. Yeah. Poison people. Yeah, but but the figures like J- Jolly and West or even Crowley. I mean, you could say they're similar in the sense that they're involved. Whether it's hypnotism or or, or ph- use of pharmaceuticals, the same things that, that I heard Crowley used to invite people over for dinner and dose them. You know, Absolutely, oh, he secretly dose people. Yeah, he made a joke about dosing people in New York. Um, with like the precursor to mushrooms, the same kind of psychoactive ingredient. Yeah, so it's uh, I mean, it's very similar. And when you get people and hypnotize, he knew how to hypnotize people. Uh, this is probably. how he convinced people he could disappear or something or vanish. Yeah, I think so. Up. I mean, he he. There was like one guy who knew him in in New York said he would hypnotize people and women and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, who was? Uh, which is similar to like MK Ultra, where it's some of the sex. I would say so. Sex I mean, kittens or something, where you can hypnotize them and let them do and do your will, which can you know, which is I guess for. Well, you could you could equate yeah. all of his Scarlet Women as sex kittens, really. I mean, that's what he turned them into. Branded them on their chest with the mark of the beast, and then 
they were basically kind of his servants for and hasn't until he done one. And hasn't the culture agenda of the past fifty years been to uh, make women scarlet women in general? He <laughs> can make that argument. I don't know. I mean, I I think that sexual revolution and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you look, yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt it. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if I you look, at, look at you're TV. you're in a society that's headed toward, you know, that the satanic uh, values. You know? Yeah, I think that that's where people are headed. So they're just breaking down every moral code or every barrier, and eventually that's where you'll be as Crowleyism. And that's what Crowley himself said. You, I'm going to make. He told people um, in one of his things. He said, "What do you say? I was not. Oh, what do you say? I will." Here's my quote. He said something about, you know, eventually I'm going to have the world basking in Crowleyanity. A uh, <laughs> hundred years from now, I will have people basking. Let me find this direct quote. I will have people basking in the sunset of Crowleyanity is what he says. What well, is I, the date at this moment? I told him 1904. And then Crowley said, in a hundred years from this day, the world will be sitting in the sunset of Crowleyanity. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at society today with a illegitimacy rate of close to 40%, um uh look, look at the abortion rate um how many you know how many babies have been aborted since 1973 oh, yeah. um if the overall sexual mores public morality is such i i i don't think that was an empty boast on his part yeah. um now how does this happen i mean obviously crowley to many people he's sort of like a a signature of hipsterism, like Che Guevara, people don't really think about it. They they know that you know yeah, the rock stars like to talk about it, and they, and they listen to rock music, and they most people don't really emulate the life of Robert Plant or Jimmy Page. They can't afford to. Right. But nevertheless, the work of a Kinsey, uh, it's I would look at a sort sort of like a, a, a chemical concentrate that you pour into the overall society, and it's diluted, but it's, nevertheless, it has its effect. That's what's happened in society. I think that's a, yeah, that's a great uh, yeah. metaphor you know, or analogy. Yeah, I think that, that that's kind of it. You know, you have these kind of uh, important figures who are out there proselytizing and changing people's minds. I think Larry's one of them. Some of these musicians are definitely like that. You know, Page, Jimmy Page, and some artists. Well, yeah, I remember when musicians. I was like in the eighth grade, people were reading the... Uh, well, whether it's Jim Morrison's biography or the Led Zeppelin's biography about you know about their life work, I remember thinking, why would you care? I mean, I remember, I mean, I got into music. I liked the Beatles, like like most people did, right. you know. I did. I and love the Beatles. I still do, you know. But I never th- thought that uh, maybe it was where I was raised. I never thought that I should emulate their lifestyle, right. uh, you know. But I just wonder, why would you want to listen to? Why would you want to read a book about this Dionysian lifestyle of rock stars? Right. Everyone knows young men in their twenties, worth millions of dollars, are going to have lots of women. <laughs> and so, my point is, the whole point of promoting that is to, again, is to set that standard, create create that aspiration or standard. I would agree, and I mean, I think that some of those lives are very Dionysian, like you said, you know, yeah. indulgence and trying to exist that life that I don't think was there in the fifties. No, I think no, things no. were much more fun down. But yeah. I think. Um, I mean, for example, Jim Morrison, there's a picture of him on one of his albums sitting over a bust of Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. And so all these people, even uh, Charles Manson I have in my book, uh, what was her name? One of his followers said they studied Aleister Crowley. So Crowley is like seated all these different people. And I think that that, you know, here you have, like you said, you have this very potent figure who, you know, uh, basically dripped into the water of the culture of the 20th century and, and polluted a wide variety of people and thereby 
the culture and our history, you know. But that, but I, I think that figure himself was just one man. I think he he himself represented a, um, um, I guess you could say, a, a an elite or or, or, or a group of people, called, whether it's Freemasonic or or, or satanic, or, all all these all the same probably. But their goal, and I think a good example is, uh, is uh, Aldous Huxley, who, the group, the club, you know, group that he came from, when he wrote, uh, you know, he wrote, uh, you know. Uh, 1932, he wrote uh, uh, Brave New World. Brave New World, thank you. You know, predicting, you know, what was going to unfold the next three, four decades. Right, and just kept that consistency when he spoke at Berkeley about the same thing, the uh, psychedelic dictatorship or whatever he said. Yeah, and in the 1930s, general society, no way, looked like it would ever go that way, right? Nope. Even as late as the 50s, although if you really would examine, you had, you know, the... The undercurrents were there. You had World War, the trauma of the, of the World Wars, particularly World War II, and what it did to morality, public morality. But you do have the Kinsey Report, Playboy magazine. You have the movies. You have the um, uh, the the in, in the fifties and sixties. You have the uh, through the, under the pretext of, of, of racial integration and urban renewal, the destruction of urban Catholic neighborhoods, which formed the backbone of the political strength of the Catholic Well, I think that it wasn't just Catholics. It was everything. Even the African-American communities were destroyed, you know? Yeah, it's a way to break everything apart, right? Everything was broken apart. Yeah. There. I mean, what was the level of marriage in the African-American community before the 60s? It was something super high. Yes. Like, they all were married, like, 80%. Yes. And now, I think it's, the marriage rate is just, it's almost like 20%. It's almost nil. It's yeah, crazy. It's, it's not exist. yeah. And that's not, it, and that was all done under the ages of, the war against poverty. Yep, which was just really the war on poverty is really just a, an excuse for um, I think gentrification and, and removal. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean that's how these people think. They think decades in advance. And there, there have been uh, intelligence agents who have said, I mean, the uh, former intelligence people who said that the plan is to import the drugs into some neighborhoods to drive the property values down, destroy the neighborhoods, so they can gentrify it twenty years later. Wow. <laughs> oh, I'm not surprised. It's happening in D.C. I mean, certain parts of this country, L.A. Yeah, it's certain a, it's parts been, of L.A. were super drugged out. Venice, and now it's like a million dollars a house. It's a business plan. Yeah, so I wouldn't it's doubt it. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. All these guys are together. If you look at you know that Aldous Huxley when he all, what's weird also about Crowley is some of his a lot of his followers came to Los Angeles or people who knew him. So Aldous Huxley was in L.A. Hubbard set up Scientology in L.A. All and, these other people. And the, they're, they're controlling the culture. Right. Well, here, get this. I mean, through the middle. There's a time. So Leary's hanging out with Huxley, but it's known that Hubbard was uh, new Huxley in L.A. And that's an interesting element where this guy who created a mind control organization yes. that was, had a lot of influence by Aleister Crowley is hanging out with Aldous Huxley who wants to facilitate these types of change in society. Mm-hmm. So Hubbard and Huxley were both interested in the same thing. How can you take groups of people and change their behavior to uh, specific outcomes. You know, it's pretty I remarkable. Mean, I mean, I alluded to it earlier, but an example of this is, uh, of course, we have 1957 Life magazine, The Magic Mushroom, April, May 1957. Right. Wasn't that Al Hubbard or something like that? Well, the, the, uh, the principal figure there was R. Gordon Wasson, who was the uh, PR, uh, head of PR for J.P. Morgan Bank, which then reveals the, the corporate connection to MKUltra. But you also have the, you know, the case of uh, Gregory Bateson uh, and Margaret Mead, uh, his, his wife, who, who she's, um, um, he's, he's, he's uh, 
talking about weaponized anthropology, and of course she's pushing what they, what has been called Blue Lagoon uh, anthropology. You're pushing free sex, free love. Um, of course, her methodology was as bad as Kinsey's. So you have these connections, but this they're promoting uh, the use of drugs in 1957. Possibly. At the same time, this is in Life Mag, Crystal Time Life, it goes back to Henry Lutz. Right, Skull and Bones. Skull and Bones, so there you go. Ten years later, Life Magazine, you have Paul McCartney talking about using LSD. You know? So yeah, there you go. Here's your agenda. Same kind. That's of. the summer of love, right? Sixty-seven, and this is being unleashed. Um, but my, my, again, I mean, the point is, is how does these figures, although uh, you know, how do how do how, how do they have popular effect? And I think we've seen it. But uh, we get into this other case you handled was the West, West Memphis Three case. And how do we connect someone like Crowley to these three uh, people who were eventually convicted? Or not, you know, they were convicted, but they were set out on an Alfred plea. Right, which is a conviction. It is a guilty state. It's a statement of guilt. The conviction stands. They okay. still are convicted, and they remain convicted. They convicted. And they're under probation till, for another five years. But nevertheless, these, these good example of rural Arkansas, these kids... This sort of these deracinated, lost youth being yeah. drawn into the, uh, I guess you could say, the uh, the yoke, uh, under the yoke of, of Crowley. How does this happen? He, he's, I so. think it's fascinating in that sense. 1993, no internet, um, you know, this kind of middle class, lower middle class trailer park area west of Memphis, Tennessee. You know, three bo- young eight-year-old boys end up dead in, in a very... Strange way, they're t- they're hogtied from wrist to ankle. They're found drowned, and one of them had their genitals cut off, and nobody really knew what to do. Uh, the police tried to start interviewing people, but uh, they eventually got a lead that you know these three kids were involved. Damien Eccles, he actually was came into the police department, took a lie detector test, failed it, told the police, "I'll tell you everything once I talk to his mom." Talked to his mom and said, "I'm not telling you anything." Um, but they brought in Jesse Miss Kelly, who then confessed, and they were all arrested. I think it was June 5th, 1993. But uh, there were tons of reports that came into police, and you can read through the police files. And there's all kinds of occult stuff in there. And uh, they brought in a trial. You know, uh, Damien Eccles, the trial was in the next year, 1994. And they brought up a trial, this kind of thing about Crowley. Were you involved in Crowley? And they asked him all kinds of different questions. But he said he knew about Crowley. And he, his response was, he was a guy who thought he was a god. So he had an understanding. And, and Eccles was well-read in the occult. He actually admitted at trial at the time that he knew everything about the occult. And uh, interestingly, he just wrote an article, at least this year or last year, where he said he was prosecuted because of his love of Aleister Crowley, which is an interesting statement because mm-hmm. at the time in 1993, I don't think the, the police or the prosecutors knew the totality of it. But Jesse Miss Kelly uh, confessed that they were out at this place called um, Stonehenge, which was a uh, decaying old cotton gin where they did rituals and they were involved in the occult. And uh, one of the fascinating things about this case is how groups of people can come in and twist or shape the truth of what happened. Uh, you know, these people were put in jail by 24 jurors and HBO and the docu- three documentaries, uh, Paradise Lost documentaries, came out. The first one made them look pretty guilty. But the second and the third, they tried to place the blame on two differing stepfathers. One was John Mark Byers. The other is Terry Hobbs, which is interesting enough in itself because the three perps, actually it was just Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin, said, oh, we are 100% convinced it's Terry Hobbs. And now they think it's John Mark. I mean, they were 100% sure that it was Ter- uh, Byers, and now they say it's Terry Hobbs. So they've changed their perp, which should tell you everything. But 
Um, it's fascinating because all these other people who were uh, celebrities got involved. Johnny Depp, Dave Navarro, uh, Margaret Cho, Eddie Vedder, and Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks, and Peter Jackson, who was a film director, and financed their release. They raised something like 10 to $20 million, got out, and eventually they just changed public perception and uh, got out of jail on August 19th, 2011. And... Uh, but there, once they got out, Damien Eccles goes out and gets all these occult kind of shaped tattoos, hangs out with other occultists, gets a black sun on his back, and is essentially free. But he's out. If you look at all of his stuff that he's producing, he's creating all these occult insignia things, but the Theban alphabet with sigils on them that uh, he's selling for people. He can't. I mean, it's hard to go get a job when you're a convicted child killer, but and remain a convicted child killer. Um, but uh, you know, the case itself. Uh, back then, there there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's direct evidence, but I think the post-conviction confessions of Jesse, Miss Kelly, if they ever played in court again, I think would uh, be very influential to a jury. And I think that's why they took the Alford plea, and basically, t which is a guilty plea. And it's just a remarkable case because most people think that they've been railroaded. But if you read the case, I think that uh, you could come to a different conclusion. And I think that it's a phenomenon that's actually taking place in the modern culture where people go in and reanalyze cases and think that there's something shady going on. Uh, for example, it's Making of a Murderer, which is about uh, the Avery case. And another one is uh, Serial, which was a podcast. But if you look at the actual case files, um, you know, it's hard to believe that some of these people are innocent because they have direct people confessing about it. Even if the in like, for example, the making a murder case, even if uh, Dacey was found to be in violation of his constitutional rights, he admitted to being there and doing it to the police and his mom. So uh, that's just an example. So that's basically it. I mean, I think Abomination was, uh, you know, my book Abomination was really a statement to say, look, there's some real problems by saying these people are innocent. You might have gotten somebody who was a... Uh, killer out of jail because he does uh, Damien Eccles for example had a 500 page psych report that's commonly referred to as exhibit 500 that goes into his psych history and his institutionalization in three different psych, psych wards one actually in Oregon and two in Arkansas so um, abomination is pretty remarkable it's a remarkable event it shows it shows the potency of celebrity opinion and PR upon the American public and well Another question is why would the, why would they rally around him so much? This That's an one case in Arkansas. It's an excellent question, and there's a lot of mystery involved in that. Why? Are, I mean, their public statement is is that this is a great injustice, but uh, if you research some of those, I would just select uh, suggest the listeners research some of those celebrities and see what their personal interests are. Uh, I think that you'll find them uh, very consistent with the interests of the perpetrators of the the. The crime in West Memphis. They share admiration of Crowley with the perpetrators. <laughs> well, nobody's come right out and said. Dave Navarro, for example, has a unicursal hexagram, which is something that Crowley designed. He has that tattoo on his elbow. Um, uh, John, Johnny Depp has a long-running friendship with Marilyn Manson, who says he has an affiliation with the OTO and the Process Church, or ide ideology of the Process Church. Um, and they, uh, the rumor is all four, Damien Eccles, Henry Rollins, Johnny Depp, and Marilyn Manson all have a black sun tattoo on their back, which is similar to the iconography of 
some of the Nazi iconography. And uh, so uh, I would just su suggest people research it. I, I, I don't have any direct proof that they're involved in secret societies, but um, I know that, well, for example, Damien Eccles is a, is a member of the OTO. He's been confirmed as a member of the OTO by the OTO on their website, which is Crowley's, uh, Crowley's Secret Society. And he moved to Salem, Massachusetts? Correct. So once he got out, he moved to Salem because he thought that he had some affinity with the witches of uh, the Salem witch trials. And he said, oh, I know what it's like. It's weird for him to say that because it basically uh, admits, I think, publicly that he was involved in some kind of witchcraft. He actually was had an encyclopedia of witchcraft um, that he wanted to read. He actually told Mara Leverett, who wrote Devil's Knot, that he wanted that book. So um, it's strange that he went there. He it was actually an interesting part of the story because he ran into people there who actually were bright enough to read the court cases and realize there were serious problems with claims of innocence. And he actually either left town or was driven out about a year later. One of the people he ran into was the son of Peter Blatty, the writer of The Exorcist, Mike Blatty. And so uh, Mike Blatty actually was telling people, come on, this is, there's some serious problems here. This is a dangerous person. And so now Damien Eccles is in New York where he wrote that he wanted to turn New York into a giant magical antenna. Um, he's been writing into like a magical book and uh, publishing it on Instagram. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's currently what's been going on. And, you know, they, they've had these run-ins over the last five years. There were, he was supposed to be on a radio show. That got canceled. He was working through Yoga Works in L.A. through a yoga studio. Um, he was going to do a magic on the mat performance, and that got canceled because people were like, hey, there's something wrong here. Um, so he was supposed to do a promotional thing for another company or something like that. That got canceled, and uh, he's been seen with some interesting characters. He's been in kind of a movie. I heard that he had a problem with his probation and had to go back and talk to a probation officer back in Arkansas. I haven't confirmed that. Um, and uh, he's still kind of doing artwork, and he's involved in all these, uh, you know, just pretty interesting. The interesting thing about all three is that they didn't, obviously didn't bond in jail because they all live in separate places. Yeah. Amy Nichols is on the East Coast. Jesse Miss Kelly is supposedly in kind of deep hiding or just being keeping a low profile in Arkansas. And Jason Baldwin went to Washington, and he's been in Washington. And if people want to really get an insight into the case and some of the obfuscation and deceptions involved, they can go to my YouTube channel at Occult Investigations and check out some of the videos where I just obviously prove these guys are not telling the truth. They're, they're just obvious. And it's pretty shocking, too, because some of these journalists who interview them don't even do the basic elementary uh, anal you know, reading of the court cases. So they just ask them questions and they just let them tell them whatever they want, mm -hmm. which is remarkable because they just don't even like know the fundamentals of the case. Why are you going to actually let them tell you what really happened? So uh, they've actually, the, the sloppiness, slovenliness, and outright negligence of the American media has propagated and promoted these lies about the West Memphis Three. They just, just shouldn't even be working in journalism, some of these slobs. It's really incredible. Now, your other book, uh, was it Children of the Beast? Yeah, that's my most recent book. Now, that, that talks about, I guess, uh, Crowley's cultural influence through popular Correct. music and the movies and stuff. Yeah, um, so you, could say, you, you could say that the, the, these, these three characters are sort of the bastard children of Crowley? 
And also an entire generation who... Well, made... I mean, my argument, definitely there's an attachment of the occult and Crowleyism into the West Memphis Three. I read Eccles, uh Life After Death, and Death book, which is his story about the uh, um, time in jail, which some people who have also been in jail cr uh, criticized and said, come on, this isn't true. But uh, a guy by the name of Billy Sinclair, you can't find his articles anymore, but if you want to read his articles, they're on my Facebook page. And on coldinvestigations.com, you can read his great articles about the West Memphis Three. But um, the uh, there's when I was reading Eccles' book, he did something called the West Memphis Three. I mean, sorry, it was called the HGA uh, working, which is called the Holy Guardian Angel, and it's something specific to Crowley. And it, Crowley himself said that that his Holy Guardian Angel was Satan. So um, there's there's some definitely some hardcore ties to Crowley and. Uh, in the, the West Memphis Three case, but the, my argument in Children of the Beast is that Crowley has had has achieved kind of, in, to a certain extent, and put a shadow over humanity in the extent that, and to the extent that he influenced all these people to um, engage in certain things that he wanted, do what thou will, the promotion of magic, uh, license of un the thing about do what thou wilt, that precept is you do what you want over any effect upon other people um and it's actually in the opposite of christ's dictum that is do unto others upon that would you do it to yourself so um i do think that the ideation of crowley has affected a lot of the culture and a lot of the people in the culture and it's a deleterious effect yeah and we see that in popular culture all over you see that in the various reality shows oh gee, yeah. it's the, nar the, the narcissism Narcissism, the, yeah. and, and that's interesting because psychopathy, exactly. psychopathy, sociopathy, and I think that that was exemplified in Crowley. And if you look at a lot of the West Memphis Three supporters, they're just narcissistic as hell. Those celebrity ones, and you see that in the modern culture. I think that um, that's something that's promoted as good, and I think that that is actually promoting evil as good. Mm -hmm. Well, all these TV shows, Scandal or, uh, or House of Cards, and. You, you, one way to look at them as revelatory, but no, it's a promotion of evil, saying this is how it is. What are you going to do about it? This is how you get ahead in life. Uh, even even like cooking shows, like Cutthroat Kitchen, right? <laughs> I mean, that's it. And I think that society is cutthroat. Which hey, by, I went by, to by, by, school, by, man, it's cutthroat as hell. Those people don't have any concept yeah. of looking out for anybody, and I think that that Cup, is cupcake you know, wars. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. And if you do the research on that, and I think uh, Pierce Redman and and. Tom Secker out of the UK have traced that that, that the Pentagon and CIA are heavily involved in those in the production of those shows. Really, that's shocking. So it's that's all it's all culture creation, yeah, manipulation. It's sad. I think it's unfortunate. It's good that those guys are uh, exposing that. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's just you know, why would the Pentagon and CIA be concerned about cupcake wars? You know, or naked and afraid, and all these things. You know, just shaping our reality. You know, behind yeah. the scenes, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, and it's true. And it's, and it's like it's, it's, it is. It's like an alchemical process, which brings us back to John D, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. The alchemy, <laughs> and you know, the alchemy comes through Crowley, and all of his followers talk about alchemy. And I talk about Yodorowsky, who is a famous film director, and Jimmy Page are all into alchemy, the alchemical process, the uniting of opposites, those types of things. So, mm -hmm. and to create change, to come up with a different outcome. Well, William, I think we covered a lot of ground tonight. I think it was a great conversation. Uh, Likewise, man. Thank you for having me on your show. So, um, again, um, 
where can we find your work again? Give us the rundown. You can find my book signed by me from my website at occultinvestigations.com. I have a very active YouTube page and Facebook page. My YouTube is Occult Investigations, or you can just type in William Ramsey. I have tons of stuff on the West Memphis 3 that I think uh, your listeners would be very interested in watching. And also put up a bunch of stuff about like Hillary Clinton's illness. But oh, yeah. uh, I'm also my stuff is available on Amazon, but it's much better for me if people purchase my books from my website. And also, you've also done a lot of interviews with Ed Opperman, and you go to his site, you can catch interviews there. Would you, would you cover in detail a lot of what we talked about tonight? Yeah, done a lot of stuff with Ed. I was his, I'm still his producer, although I'm kind of winding down with my new show, but uh, which is on Awake Radio on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. But all those shows are going to be on my YouTube channel, too. Great. Okay, listen, well, thanks for coming on. Thank you, man. Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon sometime? Hopefully. Hopefully. Thanks, Timothy. God bless. Good night. Bye bye. Good night. Bye bye.